I don't want the renewable industry to then eventually become part of the problem. I want us always to be focused on making sure that we're part of the long-term solution and testing ourselves to deliver the best outcome, the most sustainable, and, and the project with the least impact to put and, and economically the most attractive. But they have to be balanced. That's the Chief Executive Officer from the Sentient Impact Group, Oliver Yates. And I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations. Welcome. It's so great to have you on board. Should you enjoy this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends. In this new episode, I'm fortunate to interview Oliver after hearing him speak a few days earlier at the Smart Energy Council conference in Melbourne. Oliver had run Australia's Clean Energy Finance Corporation before taking up his role with the Sentient Impact Group. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Oliver Yates is excited about the idea of floating wind turbines in Victoria's Bass Strait, and that excitement and passion was on show when he spoke at the June 22 State Energy Summit Victoria. First we will hear what Oliver had to say at the Melbourne conference, and then we'll hear the post-conference interview. Thank you, uh, thank you, everybody. It's delightful, uh, delightful to be here. Um, what I'm going to talk about is really uh, what the opportunities are for Victoria. Um, while Victoria is really a very small state, uh, we sometimes completely forget that we're blessed with access to renewable resources that will run about 92% of the time. Yes, renewable resources running 92% of the time, and those resources are directly on our doorstep. Um, the resources are located out of your sight. Isn't that amazing? No visual impairment and they can provide power directly to industrial customers, processing facilities and hydrogen plants uh, all around Victoria. And obviously they'll be there to replace the increasingly dilapidated coal-fired uh, power stations. So I'm gonna talk about something which people obviously don't talk about very often, which is uh, floating offshore wind, which in my view could be out of sight in a few years time. So, um, so let's, let's chat about that as an opportunity for Victoria. If you're looking at what Victoria has been doing, they've now got these wonderful wind zones. But, but contrary to what people might think, you would think that the best wind would be in those wind resources, in those wind zones that we've specified uh, going forward with the government. But actually, they're the worst wind resources in the Bass Strait. They're not bad, don't get me wrong. They're still good wind resources. Um, but there are much better wind resources available to be picked. They're much closer to uh, the demand of electricity and they can be accessed more easily, again, without any visual uh, amenities. So I'll encourage you to take a look and understand what we have here in Victoria. We have access to, we have access to, without having to build 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines, uh, an abundance of <coughs> renewable energy right here in front of us. Bass Strait wind is actually better than the North Shore wind. There's, the volume is available. We could be building for 20, or 30 or 40 years, time after time after time, bringing power directly into our cities. That would create an enormous amount of jobs for Victorians. It would actually create the hydrogen economy that we want. We could build all of that here and progressively roll it out, making sure each deployment is cheaper and cheaper. And as it's running all the time, we don't need to worry too much about those terrible coal-fired clunkers who are disappearing. So Victoria needs to unlock this resource. <coughs> Unfortunately, there is no time to waste. And, um, 
And, uh, and what we're seeing at the moment is that the licences that the government is proposing here are not in any of the zones that I pointed out where our best resources are. Um, obviously the power for floating offshore is coming down, it is available to us, but we need to start to plan today and try and unlock those resources rather than sit around in the past thinking that the only place you can put wind offshore is where you can fix it in the ground and actually in areas where we have lower wind resources. So the Victorian government has an opportunity to move on that. What I'd like to say is that a lot of people around Australia, and I was included in one of them, I was a little bit misled by the costs of floating offshore wind. Now people can debate the current costs, but the proposed future costs are actually narrowing quite quickly. And to be honest, the best indicator of whether something is going to work is really whether the market is turning towards it. And what you're seeing here is the recent bid for offshore wind licences in Scotland. 59% of the capacity that was bid was bid in floating offshore areas. So it's not me saying it, the market is telling you that people are starting now to reach out to those areas because they can see the costs of floating offshore wind falling. Now it surprised me, but it was the great Charles Jones who's in front of us who convinced me as an ex-Wally engineer from Mistral. Um, I assumed that it was much more expensive. Um, however, it's very clear that the costs are declining and this opportunity is coming into shape and should be part of what Victoria is considering. Remember, we don't have all of those concerns about long transmission. We've got close transmission, we can deliver it to shore. It's the reliability factor, it's the capacity factor. It's an option that actually means we're not going to be so exposed to needing all that additional storage if we potentially take this opportunity up. <coughs> projects around the world are getting underway, so again, there's a growing list of projects completed, there's a growing list of projects in construction, and people are planning them now. It's not just, um, you know, mythical, it, it's actually happening. Uh, the costs, well, we know that NRL is, re re is, is rarely right, um, but forecasting the future is pretty clear here. Offshore renewables and offshore wind is actually falling in price. Um, some of these projects, obviously, and it's important to think about all these hydrogen projects, because I, I want to talk, talk to you about one of the things that I find attractive about this, is I want you to contrast some of the massive hydrogen projects people are talking about in other parts of the world, and, what, and even in Australia, and think about the costs. Whilst offshore floating wind might be more expensive from a power perspective, is the socialised costs those projects are going to bring on society. How do you think they're going to be built? These massive projects in the Pilbara, what do they want taxpayers to pay for? We need new hospitals, we need new airports, we need new schools, we need new roads. We don't need that. In Victoria and Tasmania, we just put the transmission line out. We've got all of the people infrastructure here. We can build all of this. We don't need to socialise all of these costs. All of those costs are being socialised in these massive projects. We've got Australian developers in Namibia and Morocco and sitting in front of us, right in front of us here between Victoria and Tasmania is a massive resource for which we don't have to socialise all of those costs that are going to be required for those mega projects. So actually it's a, it's a great opportunity to consider. Victoria is potentially missing the boat. If they don't actually change the way they start on feasibility licences to allow people to have feasibility licences in the best resources closest to Victoria, then we're missing, a, missing an opportunity. So they need to consider that. So I would ask Victoria to consider to allow participants to start working right now and encouraging them to develop projects in the Bass Strait so they can tap Australia's best wind resources in an area where we do not need to build all the other infrastructure, the hospitals, the schools, the airports, the roads, the ports. It's all here. 
the power is sitting there, but for some reason people are not allowing developers to go out there and actually do feasibility licenses. So just looking at it quickly, this is kind of like a schematic. It's all pretty easy. We've already got the transmission. You just bring it on shore. You build them out. You can build out 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 gigs. Doesn't matter. There's plenty of it out there. There's no shortage of it. You build the turbines in Victoria. You build it all here. You tow it out. You anchor it. Bob's your uncle and away you go. No transmission risk. No storage risk. So a lot of opportunities here. I know we're time short. So what I'll do is just again remind the scenario is that developers should be starting to look at the opportunities for floating offshore wind. The government should be encouraging people to start to tap this resource here. They should be looking at the holistic cost of tapping this resource, considering the alternative to both hydrogen projects and alternatives to the cost of transmission and storage that we're seeing could get delayed. Diversity of power is good. It's incredible that we're sitting in a state short of power and in front of us just off our coast <coughs> is the best resources in the world and no one even has a license yet to do a feasibility study to make it a reality. So thank you. Thank you, Oliver. Now we switch to an interview conducted just a few days ago. Oliver, before we got interrupted or we lost our connection yesterday, you mentioned that the greatest achievement of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation while you were there was it survival? What does that mean? Well, the government obviously tried to abolish it um, on numerous occasions, actually three times. I mean, that's, I mean, to be honest, that's one part of it. Obviously, surviving is one thing, but as is pretty clear, I mean, there are not many government institutions uh, like that have been set up and have been so successful as the CEFC. Uh, and you can contrast that to, uh, to many of the other government agencies that were set up at the time who've struggled a lot more than the CFC did. So, um, you know, not only did we survive, um, but actually, you know, we were able to thrive. And the people who, you know, joined me when I started, probably about 80% of them are still there. So um, they've loved it. They've continued to grow the business and it's been a highly successful organisation. You are now the CEO of the Sentient Interback Group. Did that exist before you joined it or...? Well, no, we didn't. Um, so it, um, it it came out of um, originally, or part of it's come out of um, our IIG, which is the Impact Investment Group, um, which owned uh, a, a series of solar uh, projects and was really doing um, property projects, all, all you know, highly environmentally conscious. So it was called the, you know, Impact Investment Group originally, and. Um, uh, effectively, what we've done is expanded the platform into a pure um, impact platform where uh, we're doing a bit like kind of what you did at the CFC. We just don't have quite a, the same amount of capital as what the CFC had, but um, it's in three verticals, which is to what we're trying to do is really change the way people invest. In other words, you know, too often investors and bankers um, are much more concerned about just the pure economic return and they need to consider more about the overall return that a project delivers so whether the project not only delivers a good economic return but actually whether it actually builds back better so all of the projects that we do whether they be in mainly three verticals are in the climate change space the um you know, the um, biodiversity protection and, and carbon space and then social infrastructure space are all about investing money, but in all circumstances, ensuring that the process of investing money results in uh, investments which actually build back to society rather than take away from society. Because I think what we've seen over time is far too many people, uh, you know, and I've been, you know, a banker for 20-something 20, 20 years, and it really was much more focused on obtaining a return um, on your money rather than worrying whether the transaction actually was positive or negative once you considered all of the externalities involved. And I think it's really important now that people 
actually consider the externalities of their investment and only invest where it's actually genuinely returning a positive economic return and isn't actually creating a negative externality because otherwise you're just stealing from the future for a short-term gain. Oliver, I'll put a link to the Sentient Group in the episode notes, but it says the, the one of the ideals is to unlock the power of capital and prove that finance can drive the transition to a better and more sustainable world. So how are we going to do that? Well, this is the whole point, is that, that I, I think that actually, you know, like when, when it, as, a, as a bank now, when you deploy capital, you have to know you're, you're, you're the person you're lending to, you have to ensure the money's not used for terrorism purposes, all that type of stuff. But they're not actually actually required to know that the money that they're putting out to somebody isn't being used to do something really, you know, long-term uh, severe damage to society or the environment. And all capital should be only used for investments that actually generate a positive return and don't create long-term damage. And um, we need to change that. I mean, that's that's what we need to do. We need we need we need all investments to be impact investments. So, in other words, every time a bank or an investor makes an investment decision, they stop looking just at the return on their money. They look at the return to society as lo- as well as the return on their money. Like the social gains as well. So. Well, it has to be. You can't. I mean, this is what's wrong. You know, you can say, "Oh, well, great. I'll, you know, I provide money to somebody. They they do something with it, and they leave a, a horrific environmental liability. Yeah, I got my return on my money. But then, who's going to have to pay for the environmental li- liability or the environmental damage? The future does, and that's not acceptable. We can't have that anymore. We've, you know, we've done that for too long. So that's that's why I'm excited about um, this whole area because I'd like what we're doing to be the normal way for people to invest rather than for people to think, oh, you're a you're a new institution, you're an impact in- institution. The answer is every bank and every capital person who's in the financial market should be investing in the same way to ensure that the money that they're deploying is actually building back a better society and a better environment. You mentioned in, in the on the website that you want to transition to a better and more sustainable world. Can you sum that up in a few minutes? Like what is a better and sustainable world? Well, one, for example, where every every time someone receives a loan for a project or receives capital for a project, then that activity that the company is making with that money is leaving a positive legacy rather than a negative legacy. You spoke with a lot of passion recently at the uh, Smart Energy Council conference about floating wind power in Bass Strait. Should the federal and state governments make the appropriate arrangements? Have you got people ready to step up and fund that, or what's happening there? Well, you can see what's happening uh, all over all over the place. Is that the cost of offshore wind has been falling, right? And and the cost of floating offshore wind has been falling. And the thing that's really nice about floating offshore wind is that you you can generally put it, particularly in Bass Strait. Bass Strait isn't very deep, so you can put it a long way away. I mean, you know, you haven't got a a real continental shelf because of the way that. Australia works. Um, Tasmania is still attached to the continental shelf, so it's relatively flat all the way through. So you can go out, you know, 40, 50, 60, 80 miles and put put your floating wind, wind farm in and just tether it, and uh, and it won't be in people, it won't be a blight, it won't damage the beaches, you won't see it from the beaches, um, whereas a lot of the other projects people are proposing you know, I mean, our sun comes up <laughs> in the, you know, rises in the east, and and we get out there and we look at it in the morning, and in, it, we're not the North Sea. I, I, I'm not sure whether I want um, everybody's view here over, you know, in 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 the Central Coast, for example, in in New South Wales, where there are these large wind farms proposed, 
in their view, whether it be the moon rising, which is spectacular, the moon rising and the sun rising, uh, is going to be blotted with with wind turbines uh, because because the continental shelf is probably about only 50 kilometres offshore here, so that they're proposing not to go further out. Whereas the advantage of floating offshore wind farms, if you do it in the right place, you can go much further out. Do you have people ready to fund that? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the few, yeah, absolutely. So, 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 off, offshore wind and offshore wind farms are becoming extremely popular. And the best part about that I like about them is that you can get power and deliver it straight into where it is needed because the cables, you know, can come straight into the major cities and and be delivered exactly where it's needed. Um, and that means when people talk about all these very large hydrogen projects and they talk about them, and some of them are in very very distant locations. Again, sometimes I'm not quite sure whether they're considering the externalities or who's going to pay the externalities. Because if you build these massive projects out in the middle of nowhere, someone's going to have to build an airport, someone's going to have to build a town and a hospital and schools, and you know, and, and who pays for all of that? Whereas, whereas if you did them off the coast of Victoria or Tasmania, where we already got infrastructure, um, then that external cost isn't isn't an external socialised cost. So I think there has to be a little bit of thought in here about some of these projects where we have such incredible um, uh, renewable energy resources close to major cities, uh, um, then uh, some thought should be given to make sure that the economics of these projects are actually making sense. Oliver, I worked in Bass Strait uh, in the 60s. I, w- I worked for the dark side, actually. I was with the company that was exploring for oil. Uh, and gas. It's a pretty wild place. Um, That's great. That's what's fantastic about it. I realise that, but how how do your floating wind turbines cope with those huge storms that go through there? Well, they're doing them in the North Sea and they have huge storms. The best part about it, it's so wild out there, if you've been working out there, you know that it's blowing all the time. So, so, (laughs) yeah, so, so that was the interesting part. I worked on a project on Robbins Island with, with UPC renewables, which is Ayala renewables. And, and there the wind is blowing 92% of the time. So in other words, the turbines are turning 92% of the time. So one of the big issues that we've been saying is, oh, how do we replace the brown coal fired power stations? Don't we need all this storage? Because when the wind doesn't blow and the sun (laughs) doesn't shine, well, in the Bass Strait, it's kind of like, hallelujah for one day. You know, 8% of the time, it's not blowing. You know, it's blowing about 92% of the time. So you got to think about the resources that we've got out there. They are really good resources. Yeah, yeah I know. It's howling and it's great, um, but it's fantastic if you're trying to make renewable energy. It's, it's terrible if, it, if you're out there in a boat by yourself. So there are proposed wind farms along the Victorian coast, aren't they? But you're saying they're not near as good as further out into the Bastrone. Well, the only ones that they've done are, are they haven't. Victoria has not asked the federal government to release land, which is outside, you know, the the state territory in federal waters between Tasmania and Victoria, um, for some reason, um, and I, I and I'm not sure why. New South Wales, the New South Wales government, I believe, has, which is the reason why we're seeing. You know, multiple projects. I was, you know, you've got Blue Float, you've got uh, Hunter Energy, you've got all these ones, which, you know, from for anybody living along the coast from, you know, Palm Beach all the way through to um, Newcastle, um, they might be going to scratch their heads as to, to, to what they're going to look out on if they're, if they're not if they're not awake. But the proposals out there are, are for like 10 gigawatts of wind with thousands of turbines to be put up the up the central coast. Now, that they're close, they're relatively close in. They're, they're you know, 20 kilometres between 30 and 20 kilometres from shore. And I assume that's because the continental shelf here is relatively close. But 
Um, they haven't asked for approval. And the wind here isn't nearly as good as what it is in the Bass Strait. But in the Bass Strait, it's, it's shallower uh, because obviously kind of Tasmania and Victoria are kind of attached by the same continental shelf. Um, but you've got better wind resources. But for some reason, I don't know whether Tasmania or Victoria have actually asked for the feds to actually start, you know, working on releasing the land in 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 what is probably one of our best, it's probably, it is Australia's best wind resource sitting there. Well, the salt water is fairly caustic, or is not fairly caustic, it's very caustic stuff. So how, how do you cope with that with a wind, with a floating wind? Well, these things, they, well, unfortunately, these things are so big, you know, these turbines, I don't know, you, you, you know the size of them, but they land choppers on them. So they're, they're a fair, fair way away from the water. Um, and, you know, it's the main form of power now in Europe, renewable energy. The main form of, of power is 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 now offshore uh, wind. And it always used to be much cheaper to have it, um, you know, attached. Um, but the costs on floating offshore are, are now seem to be coming down. And then the last wind auction, as I spoke about, the last wind auction that went ahead in, in Scotland, um, 59% of the capacity that was bid, bid was for floating offshore. And that surprised me. And I must say, I've... I've been of the view, right, that always on land is cheaper, which it is true, it's cheaper. But then the question is, is where are you on land and how far do you have to transmit it and all that type of stuff? Because then you've got all the, you know, interconnection problems that we've got here. So onshore is clearly cheaper. And then it was always, oh, well, offshore fixed was cheaper than floating. But what you're seeing now is that actually floating costs seem to be falling down to becoming, you know, they're forecast to level with normal fixed uh, um, attached offshore and to be honest i don't think people want fixed attached offshore in most places because it'll bring it even closer to the coast to the coast i mean we have to be a little bit sensible here if there is a choice between spending an extra 50 bucks i mean an extra 50 million on a on a 50 kilometers of extra cable so you could put it further out in the ocean so that people could still wake up in the morning and look at the beach and not have you know 100 1000 flashing lights then then maybe we should be doing that now recognizing the fact that technology pricing is coming down and that we will be able to do that and and we should be investing in in, in a bit few of the longer term solutions your presentation at the Smart Energy Conference made absolute sense to me. So what is the most significant hurdle you're presently facing? Well, in relation to offshore, offshore wind in the Bass Strait is that the Victorian government, as I understand it, have not asked the federal government <laughs> to – there's no agreement on, on releasing floating offshore wind sites in Bass Strait. Yeah. So there's a licensing arrangement that that um, the federal federal government. Um, so uh, and to give you the background, so when Star of the Sea was looking to get their original Star of the South was looking to get their permit, there wasn't a licensing arrangement. And I was head of CEFC at that time, and I worked with that project to work out how they could get started. And the only way to get started was for me to take a piece of paper around each cabinet minister on behalf of the project and get the project signed because each cabinet minister, if they individually signed, could bind the federal government. Then they said, that was 10 years ago, that they were going to quickly get legislation underway. Well, it's taken them 10 years to get around to having this kind of legislation which enables them now to to license offshore wind. Um, but as I understand, that is an agreement between the federal government and the state government. The state government needs to say to the federal government where they would like these licensing options. And I don't believe that, that it's been asked to have the licensing options in, in probably uh, our best wind, our national's best wind resource, which is in Bass Strait. So I find it a little confusing, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, um, but I haven't seen um, people are trying to talk about it. But but from when we spoke to the department, or when I, I have a team 
this Mistral Energy team who, you know, I mean, we don't really have a much there other than we try to promote the idea of making sure that wind is, quote, out of sight is the way I describe it, is that if you can build it out of sight, why wouldn't you? Uh, um, then discussions I think we had with the Victorian Department was is that, no, there wasn't the ability to get a feasibility licence to start work on a remote uh, floating offshore wind site in the Bass Strait. And it was kind of like, well, why? And the answer was, well, we haven't done it. You know, we've we focused on 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 those two areas that I mentioned, the two areas that I mentioned, which are Portland, uh, which has got good wind. Actually, Portland's got good wind. West Star of the South is has also got good wind. There's no joking. I mean, they're all good wind sites. But the best wind site, as you know it, as you said, you're in Bass Strait, is in the middle of Bass Strait because you, you think about it, it's it's howling there, you know, 92 all the time, which is fantastic. Yeah, and, and I think people need to understand one of the reasons why in Western Victoria, and I think you know a lot of people in Western Victoria are saying, oh, gee, I'm putting up with all these wind turbines everywhere because it's the right environmental thing to do. But the problem with Western Victoria wind is it's actually weather pattern dependent. So it blows at the same time. So when, when, it, when, it, the weather, when the weather pattern comes through, it actually howls. And then, of course, the transmission can't cope with the howling wind. So then they have to build all these transmission lines out there for the purposes of picking up the wind that blows at the same time, and when it does blow, it absolutely howls. And it's kind of like, hey, guys, there's, there's a whole bundle of, you know, costs that need to be thought about here is how do you optimise the placement of wind? Um, and it needs to be looked at it holistically, particularly if you've got something which is going to blow all the time versus something which is blowing some of the time. And if you've got massive transmission costs and congestion issues, uh, if you pack them all in Western Victoria and they're all at the same time, it's not going to help you. It's going to create the need for more storage. It's going to create, you know, instability within the grid. So, look, lots of things for people to think about. But all I was pointing out is that, you know, for some reason in there, which is between Victoria and Tassie, is an enormous resource. Um, I, I'm, I'm a bit surprised we're not trying to work out, you know, how we unlock it because we're going to, you know, how we unlock it. How urgent is it that we move on this? I think it's very urgent because everything takes time. I mean, you know that Bass Link was meant to be, you know, the new, the second Bass Link, which is Marinus Link, um, was meant to have been, you know, w well underway by now, and it's still not underway. Um, these projects can take a long time, but we actually need the power. And as you're seeing, those coal-fired power stations in Victoria are going to all be gone probably by 20. 2030, um, probably you know, 2033 at the latest. So all of this has to be built and sorted out by then, which actually means you need to get on with it. Because the lovely thing about floating offshore wind or doing something in the Bass Strait is it's a construction project which will last for 20 years. You'll be building the floating structures in marinas, you know, and you now down in Geelong or somewhere, floating them out, anchoring them, and you'll be doing them, you know, putting them in as capacity is required and you don't have any. You know, you just keep adding more and you, you build them and you take them out and you put more in depending upon the capacity that's required. I, I enjoyed reading the Sentient website and um, I was intrigued by the quote from Muhammad Yunus who said that we live in both a self, self, selfish and selfless worlds. So, and he made some really interesting comments and I was wondering whether the, the philosophy he promotes per permeates your, your group. Well, that's the whole the whole idea of 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 our of our group is to 
you know, and that, and that's what we really like about it. We find that some financial institutions have a kind of like they 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 have this kind of ESG arm or an impact arm, but they have another part of their business which is doing the same old stuff, you know, which is digging it and not really caring and just worrying about the return. What we wanted to have is very much a an institution. Uh, of investment grade scale. So in other words, we, we could become a home for large institutional pension fund capital over time, which from all the way through the top, right the way through to the bottom, everything we did followed that philosophy, this impact philosophy. And everybody who worked for the organisation, you know, was 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 you know, wanting to, you know, and focused on achieving those objectives. And, and that's what we tried to do by setting up a new institution rather than trying to build it into an existing institution. I was reading about your Forever Fund. Can you explain that to me? Well, the Forever Fund, the, the idea really came for the Forever name, came from the problem that I saw in carbon projects, that um, in a lot of carbon projects, you, you can still get carbon credits for planting trees and you can mow them down every 40 years. Um, or otherwise, your carbon project doesn't need to have trees after 100 years. And, and, and if you're trying to protect biodiversity... Um, and create homes. You know, I, I, I walk around the parks in, in Melbourne and, and, and if you look at where the parakeets um, nest, it's in hollows in trees. Well, those trees are all over 100 years old. So if you need to get trees to be more than 100 years to create the environmental infrastructure for birds' nests, then actually you do need the site to be forever. And, and to be honest, you know, what's the difference? The time value of money, there's, there's, no, there's no economic return out a hundred years. So what we wanted to do is actually say, well, every project that we're doing, where we're doing carbon-based projects, that not only would it be a carbon-based project, but the activity there would go on forever. It's not a hundred-year project; it's permanent. So, so we want to permit the projects that we're involved in, where that we're doing biodiversity and land, landscape and carbon, they, they would never be changed. So they would become permanent and. Um, and that's the reason why we're trying to call it a, you know, that's the reason why we came up with a name Forever Fund because what, what we do. It's a nice name. It's a nice name. Yeah, yeah. And I, and, but I think, you know, we've been thinking, well, how do we make it forever? You know, someone, you know, we had this debate. Well, what happens in, you know, 100 years' time, they want to put a freeway through this. And, you know, the government starts jumping up and down about running a freeway. And we're thinking, gee, you know, well, okay, you know, we can put easements over it. And, oh, but then the government will still come over it. So then one person said, well, let's let's find some really, really uh, important species, um, which are quite rare, and, and find a way to plant some of them. So people have been quite creative. It's nice when you, you get a group together to say, well, how do I really, really make this permanent? And um, and, and maybe the most per permanent way is, you know, we're talking about making sure that it's handed back to traditional owners and become becomes part of national estates and can we make it part of a national park. So it's a real effort to say, if we're doing this, we we want it to be permanent. We, we really do. And um, and, you know, I know we won't be around to see it, but if you don't plan to try and do something in the first place, then you're not planning to create the homes for those birds or that ecosystem that you're really setting out to do. So it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not right, in my view. So if we're, we're really conscious of trying to work out that when we do our projects in the Forever Fund that they're locked, you know, that the areas that we set aside for biodiversity and carbon remain that way, um, you know, long after I'm dead and hopefully after my, you know, my, 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 my ancestors are, are dead too, that, that it stays, it's permanent. Oliver, is there something else you'd like to say about your Bastrade idea or the sentient group in particular? No, no, look, it's really, it's really good. I think it's an important conversation to have because um, I know um, I, um, 
I, I, I'm really conscious that a lot of people are really embracing um, renewables on the basis that we need to, and when we absolutely do. We absolutely need to get renewables built. But like everything, I think everything needs to be looked at in relation to its impact. And if, and if you can build renewables in a place where nobody sees it, for example, um, you know, floating, you know, 100 kilometres offshore, um, and you can make it economically similar, then it surprises me we're not striking out for that straight away, like really leaning into that. And and I really wanted to bring it into the dialogue because I, I really respect all the developers who are really trying hard to develop projects. Um, but just like everything, we, even though we're in the renewable space, we have to think about the impact of our projects, whether it be, you know, heat from, you know, very large solar farms can throw off heat and they can have runoff from their panels and they can, you know, affect the grass. And so what type of grass do you use? And, and all, all those type of things need to be thought about. And then if you are clearing trees for the purpose of the solar farm, are you replacing them on the on, on the western side, you know, where you need the sun or, you know, the, the part of the south, southern side where the sun doesn't come. But people, we need to think about it. It isn't just good enough to say, oh, I'm in renewables, um, I'm doing good. The answer is, is, well, I'm in renewables, I can do better, right? I can do better than just doing good. So, so I want people to think about that. In a flash, that busy man was gone. Thank you, Oliver. It was great to talk with you. Oliver's departure marks the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.